Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore. I'm your host, Aaron Zober. Today is the final show for July Independence Month, where we showcase the best independent businesses. For the last business, I'll be interviewing David Klingenberger of The Brinery. Plus, the desserts will tell you how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. But first, let's go to the appetizers and find out what's happening in the world of real food. In Britain, the magazine Farmers Weekly and Barclays Bank did a survey that found only 15% of farmers would consume genetically modified foods. Although 61% of the farmers surveyed said they grow GMOs if they have the opportunity, it's clear they don't see GMOs as safe. This is similar to how non-GMO foods are served in Monsanto's cafeterias. Next, concert promoter Live Nation is now serving local produce and humanely raised meats at its 38 amphitheaters across the U.S. The meats will either contain the labels Certified Humane, Global Animal Partnership, or Animal Welfare Approved. The produce will be sourced from within 100 miles of where the venue is located. Live Nation CEO Michael Rampino says the change will cost Live Nation $1 million, but this won't affect the price of tickets or concessions. Words don't describe how amazing this is that a large company like Live Nation is going the extra mile on their own to serve real food. In other news, the Food and Drug Administration has proposed new rules for U.S. food importers to be responsible for handling their foreign food suppliers to safely process the food. The importers would have to verify that the foreign companies they're importing from are using the same levels of food safety in this country. As always, it's best to buy local food and stay away from imported foods from long distances. I don't have a whole lot of faith in the FDA doing their job to make food safe for us, but any change from what we have now is good, and perhaps this is a start. Also, the state of New York is banning the trade of shark fins with a law that goes into effect next summer. The finning of sharks involves in catching sharks, cutting off their fins, and returning the animals to the water to die. As this process is unsustainable in terms of not using all of the shark and the fact that sharks are an endangered species, I fully support the shark fin ban and hope other states will soon follow suit. And finally, a woman in Arizona was shocked to find a chicken foot in a package of chicken breasts that she purchased at Safeway. The shopper tweeted a photo of it and then sent a statement to news organizations about how she was disgusted and wanted to have the store remove the item. This story shows just how disconnected we are about where our food comes from. If she took a look at what I have in my freezer, she'd see chicken feet and other parts of the chicken she's probably not used to seeing at supermarkets. Chicken feet, heads, and gizzards are great for making broth. And now for the main course. We continue our July Independence Month, showcasing the best independent businesses in real food. Today's independent business is in the world of wild fermentation. Wild fermentation has been used for foods in various cultures for generations. But like many traditional foods, it got lost with the Industrial Revolution, as producers wanted to prolong their food's shelf life, not have to refrigerate it, and so they began adding vinegar. While these foods were able to last longer, they lost their nutritional value. Wild fermentation provides probiotics and healthy bacteria. Vinegar, on the other hand, doesn't have any nutritional benefit for your digestive system. 
Now, many people are going back to eating traditional foods, and more fermented products are becoming readily available to people at farmers' markets and even some supermarkets. Fermented foods are popping up all over. Here to talk with me about wild fermentation is David Klingenberger, who runs the Brinery, which sells various fermented foods in the Ann Arbor, Michigan area. David, great to have you here. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I think you're the perfect guest to round out our July Independence Month because the Brinery is a great independent business doing fermentation with sauerkraut and pickles. That's right. Yeah, we are. Uh, we're here uh, based out of Ann Arbor, Michigan, and uh, we make sauerkraut, pickles, kimchi. Um, we're starting to get into bean ferments and you know tempeh, miso, those kinds of things. That's great. And certainly, tempeh is a great way that you can eat soy because soy, when you don't eat it fermented, it has a lot of phytates and lectins in it. But there are great traditional ways that these Asian cultures have eaten it, and Another problem is that a lot of these tempehs and misos that you see now, they're not fermented correctly. Yeah, and uh, it's true. I, and the, you know, I think our culture eats way too much soy. It's, it's really an additive in so many foods. But yeah, like you were mentioning, you know, traditionally properly fermented soy is a, is a great source of protein, and it's, uh, not, it's not bad for us. No, I mean, a lot of people bring that argument up about soy, about how the Asian cultures eat it, but their soy is different than ours, and even their tempeh and fermented foods are different than a lot of the mass-produced fermented soy that you see in the U.S. Definitely. So how did you get into wild fermentation in the first place? Um, my roots are in farming. I was uh, an organic uh, farmer for many years, uh, mostly here in Michigan, but you know, throughout the U.S. did some orchard work as well. But uh Early on, right out of high school, I, I started learning about farming and working on a farm, and um, I got interested in food preservation. Uh, just like, you know, growing carrots and storing in a root cellar, you know, was a way to preserve the, the harvest, um, I got interested in canning and making jams and uh, tomato sauces, but the thing that really excited me the most of any form of food preservation was uh, fermentation, and uh, it it's something just it, it sparks something in my in my mind that you can take a raw product like a cabbage, you can grow a cabbage, you know, you can store it for a while, but uh, especially without refrigeration, it's going to just start to deteriorate. But through the miracle and the science of fermentation, you can uh, preserve that cabbage uh, indefinitely. And I really like the idea of preserving through food without any uh, heat or any any kind of energy. It's just that amazing bacterial process. I do too, and specifically with heat, one of the problems that you have with these foods that use vinegar is that the vinegar typically is pasteurized, and pasteurization, for anyone that listens to this show, they know not a big fan of pasteurization, but I know a lot of people don't know that. We're grown learning in school how great Louis Pasteur's discovery is, and when you learn more about it, you realize really pasteurization kills beneficial bacteria which is really the essential thing that we need for our bodies. That's right. And and even, you know, there's vinegar itself is a product of fermentation, but most of the vinegar that, you know, is used in pickling and industrial uses, it's a really distilled, refined product. It's not in its raw form. You know, maybe the closest thing you can see is some of this nice, you know, apple cider vinegar with that mother culture floating around in it. But um, vinegar itself, you know, has roots in fermentation, but it's typically 
uh, very altered in, and you're mentioning kind of, a, you know, used in an industrial uh, sense. Right. That is a good point to bring up, that there are actually some vinegars that are good. There are some fermented vinegars like the apple cider vinegar, and there actually also are some raw fermented red wine vinegars. But what I'm referring to specifically is the distilled vinegar that it doesn't have any nutritional benefit. Do you view the distilled vinegar as something that's bad for people's systems? I'm not sure. I think, you know, it really sounds like you have a lot more of a uh, deeper, broader uh, knowledge on some of the science of it. I I would, you know, just trusting my gut, my, my bacterial gut brain, I would want to have anything, I would want to avoid anything that's refined and distilled down. And, um, I you know, I, I enjoy a good uh, apple cider vinegar, but um, I would, yeah, I would, I would avoid all the distilled, like, you know, grain vinegars. Right. This is something which I've certainly been looking a lot into because I've wondered that question. I've known some have said, well, there's nothing bad about the distilled white vinegar, but doesn't have any nutritional benefit. Here's something yeah. that I've been discovering recently is that the major maker of vinegar, Heinz, who makes distilled vinegar and they make the ketchups and the mustard, which include their vinegar, they use corn and their vinegar isn't organic. So it raises the question to me, is a lot of this vinegar... GMO since they use corn for it. Interesting. Yeah, I wasn't even realizing they were you're using corn for the vinegar. That's interesting. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure it is GMO. I'm sure if it's if it's corn based vinegar and it's non-organic, I'm, I'm sure there's uh, GMO traces in that. I think so too. I mean, that's pretty much what it comes down to. When corn isn't organic, then it is likely genetically modified. And with Heinz, I like that they do have now some organic products, like they have an organic ketchup, of course. I prefer a naturally fermented ketchup that doesn't use any vinegar, one similar to the recipe you have in nourishing traditions. But I am glad that they at least put that product out there with their ketchup that it's organic. So that means then that the, vi the vinegar wouldn't come from GMO corn. And also, it doesn't include any high fructose corn syrup in it. You mentioned a fermented uh, a ketchup. Have you ever uh, experimented with that? You know, I've tried making it a little on my own, and I, I didn't get it quite right, but I know some people that make some great fermented ketchup. There's this buying club out in L.A., the Culture Club 101, and they make great fermented ketchup. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I keep uh, exploring. There's so many amazing fermented condiments to explore, and uh, the ketchup, I, I've had a couple versions of it, and I've yet to make my own, but it's definitely something I'm, I'm very interested in exploring more. And I think there's different ways to make it, because if I recall correctly, I used it with a whey to ferment it, but I've heard that instead of whey, you can use, like we were talking about, the raw apple cider vinegar with the mother's culture, like the Bragg's apple cider vinegar, or there's a couple other good raw apple cider vinegars that you can make it with. And I think yeah. that process, I guess, gives a little different taste to the fermented ketchup. Right. Yeah, and there's also yeah. a paleo ketchup that I've heard about that I think that's a fermented ketchup as well. Okay. Yeah, it's uh it's it's so neat. Uh there's so that's actually kind of where I got my start um with fermentation is with nourishing traditions. Uh I think it was you know, I, I first got that book in two thousand one and I was living on a farm and there was it was just it, it really spoke to us because we were instinctually looking towards traditional food we were growing the food on the farm we had some animals and it just made sense to to look at traditional diets and you know looking at butter and bone broth and you know organ meat and uh 
but I, I, I did my first uh, fer- uh, fermentation following some recipes out of Sally Fallon's book. So um, it was, that's why it was, it was really especially cool to meet you at the uh, Wise Traditions Conference and get to meet Sally Fallon. It was a really special occasion. Oh, it was cool for me too. And those conferences are always a great gateway to meeting a lot of people. And a lot of the guests I have on my show are ones that I've met through the national conferences. And also I do a lot of involvement with the different chapters in L.A. because we have a great number of chapters for the Western Price in L.A. and in Southern California, like in the Orange County and San Diego, Santa Barbara areas. So it's really just a great network for finding different people involved with real foods, meeting people from all walks of life in different areas from the agriculture to the food processing to natural health. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, so was the sauerkraut recipe in Nourishing Traditions, was that the first one that you discovered that got you started on all of this? Yeah, yeah, it was. I, in, this was back like in 2001, and um, I made some sauerkraut. You know, we made some pickles, just kind of experimented with this and that. We did also a lot of just tomato canning and, um, you know, non-fermented tomato canning. Um, and then I spent, you know, the the the, the past decade, my 20s basically, uh traveling around, staying on different farms, just kind of broadened my horizons. And um, a few years ago, I moved back to Michigan, back to the farm where I had originally made sauerkraut. And the farmer had a bumper crop of cabbage. He had maybe, you know, I don't know, 400 extra pounds of cabbage. And I was originally only going to be back for the winter. Um, But I, I thought I'd start, you know, making a little sauerkraut. And then I something clicked and I've been looking for some kind of entrepreneurial, you know, local food based business. And that was, I just kind of clicked that making sauerkraut seemed like such a great business niche. Um, you know, when I, in all my travels, anytime I come into an area that has an interesting, you know, value added food processing business, it's very interesting to me. And in this region of Southeastern Michigan, uh, there was really no one uh, doing fermented vegetables. In fact, I think it's a it's a growing niche market, but it 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 seems to me to be still a little underserved. Um, there's I think where you are down in Southern California, I think you have some really great uh, fermented product lines, local businesses. But in this area of the Midwest, it's really definitely an underserved niche. So I was really excited to jump in there and uh, start a business. And um, so we're three years into it, and we have four employees, and uh, we do a lot of farmers markets. And every year we're just preserving more and more local uh, family farmed organic produce and making it available. I think this last year we preserved over a hundred, uh, over 80,000 pounds of uh, local organic produce. I'd say even in Southern California, it's a little of a niche. I know we have one business, Braska and Brine, that you see at a lot of the farmer's markets. Up north they have a couple. They have wild brine and there's farmhouse culture. I think kind of everywhere it's still a niche. So... Certainly, you're seeing more companies, but I think right now it's kind of a handful. It's funny because it's really coming into the national consciousness. You know, it's really uh, fermented foods. I think every week I just hear some new story or, you know, some mainstream news article about the importance of probiotics and fermented foods. You certainly are hearing more of that. And I would say in in Southern California, Certainly, there are a lot of different types of fermented food businesses. Probably the biggest one is kombucha. There's a lot of kombucha businesses in Southern California. Certainly, sauerkraut is popular, too, and we are seeing 
more sauerkraut businesses, and I know a lot of these ones yeah. that are newer, they're certainly expanding a lot. Yeah, you, you mentioned uh, kombucha, and yeah, that's I feel like that's really been like a, a gateway fermented beverage, kind of fermented product uh, for a lot of people. Um, I have mixed feelings about kombucha. I, I, I enjoy it, and I, I think it's, it's there's, there's a lot of sugar in it, and, and I know I have some friends who are concerned about the, the high levels of sugar and maybe even the low levels of alcohol that are in it. But uh, I'm, I'm excited to our the brinery is uh, rolling out some new products and one of them that's really exciting is uh, kvass and kvass is a fermented non-alcohol beverage and I think kombucha kind of fits into that term I think kombucha could be considered a type of kvass like kind of you know fermented beverages that are not you know per- fermented for the alcohol content. Um, but we're focusing on beet kvass, and we're having some really good success with, you know, creating a delicious, very deeply soured, fermented beet kvass. And I think, you know, that's a really exciting niche because there's a lot of people out there who, you know, maybe it's a bigger leap to to incorporate raw fermented vegetables into their diet, but then some kind of tangy beverage that they can drink, maybe it makes more sense to them. I think so, too, because I really don't like beets, but I have to say, actually, I like beet kvass because beets just are a little too sweet for me. I mean, I love sour things like sauerkraut and pickles, and the beet kvass, it has that sour taste due to the fermentation, so I'd say beet kvass right. is great. And yeah, I think beet kvass is kind of a cousin of kombucha. Well, they both have Ks, and they are similar in terms of the fermented drinks. As far as the kombucha and the sugar, what I would say is the way kombucha works is the sugar that's put in it is actually for the culture's not for people drinking it. Now, there is a problem, though, I've seen with some kombuchas that put in too much sugar in, specifically the Synergy kombucha, which is probably the largest kombucha that you see. That's the one that's most readily available, and I know that that's a lot of the one that people discover their exposure to kombucha. But the homemade kombuchas and some of these smaller models like High Country and other ones, they're not overly sugary because I know for me when I've had the Synergy kombucha, it's actually not done very well for me because of that. But other ones done much better. And it's kind of different for each person because I know some people that haven't been able to handle kombucha. Yeah, I think, good point. I think a lot of maybe the kombucha products, they're letting, not allowing it to ferment fully. So like there's still sugars that are un, you know undigested by the by the mother culture and I think it's, you know, they're, they're, kombucha I see kind of making this, I don't know if it's a, if it's positive or negative, but kind of becoming this like alternative soda pop almost, you know? And it, I, I it is. There's some people that drink it with the intention of thinking that it's healthier, but they don't really research the ones that they're going for. So they just find the ones that are readily available at all the supermarkets, which aren't necessarily the best. Or there are probably right. some people that just hear it's trendy and drink it because it's trendy and they right. aren't really aware of what it is. So it has that problem. Also, fermentation is a complex process, and I think you see that with a lot of products where they aren't fermented for the full time they should be and they don't reap in all the nutritional benefits. Certainly, I've seen that with some of the sauerkrauts that you'll find in the supermarkets. Yeah. Without a doubt, and that's it's exciting to um, for my business. You know, we're full-time fermenters, and I'm constantly learning. And as I go, and uh, it's doing, you know, having a business that is centered around wild fermentation, uh, there can be a lot of variables, and there can be a lot of changes. You know, with 
the temperature that we're fermenting, how long we ferment it, like you just referenced. And, uh, you know, we're constantly striving to kind of find that right balance between, you know, good texture and flavor of a product, but also like it's long-term, long-term, uh, storability. Cause it's, 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 what's amazing to remember is, you know, fermentation, it came about predominantly as a form of food preservation. And so, you know, the nutritional side of it just fit with traditional, you know, the evolution of, of, uh, of life on this planet. Um, it's, it's not like, you know, it's, 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 it's not a, uh, it's, yeah, what am I trying to say here? It's humans started to ferment cabbage to preserve it. But then the, you know, the bacterial, the probiotics was a byproduct of that. Um, and so what I'm trying to do with our, with our sauerkraut is, you know, because if you ferment something too long, then you can maybe end up with, you know, a product that maybe the texture is not as delicious or, you know, there's a lot of people who want like a real crunchy texture to their sauerkraut. That's why they like our sauerkraut, but we're, we're trying to ferment it fully so that it can sit in a jar and be preserved and not, you know, uh, not become explosive or something like that. And one of the other items that you have, we mentioned a little earlier, is pickles. And I imagine that's another one which is kind of a gateway ferment. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's such a good point. You know, especially, you know, the cucumber pickle, it's, it's in our culture, it's, it's, it's the most kind of readily available of that. You know, sauerkraut still has its niche. People still put sauerkraut on a hot dog and stuff. But, um, but pickles, you know, I'd say predominantly, you know, all the pickles you're going to see are vinegar-based pickles. But you had mentioned this earlier, you know, vinegar, vinegar, vinegar pickling was a product of industrialization, but all pickling previously was uh, natural uh, brine-fermented pickles. Um, but it's, it's, it's the greatest challenge that I've found uh, to make a really good fermented cucumber pickle. It, it's the hardest thing for us to do. Um, the flavors usually develop really well, but the cucumber itself will go soft. And in this culture, I mean, I'm kind of guilty of it myself. You know, I like a good crunchy apple. I want a crunchy pickle. The texture is important, and uh, it's hard to keep that crunchy texture um, with the fermentation. That is a hard thing to do, and I see that as a problem even with some of the fermented pickles. Like a lot of people talk about how they love the Bubby's fermented pickles, which they do taste good, but they're a little too soft for me. I used to eat them, but then I stopped because I found other ones that were better that were able to maintain the crunchiness to it, and I think that is important. It is. What what What's your favorite brand of fermented cucumber pickles? I like Sonoma Brinery. They used to be Alexander Valley. That's been the best one because they really have the deli pickle taste to me. And I'm a pretty big pickle connoisseur. I was actually fortunate to grow up with truly fermented pickles. Maybe it's the Jewish background that we knew what a good fermented pickle was. So my parents, they never bought the pasteurized vinegar pickles. We had, growing up in Cleveland, there's this company called Don Herman's, and they made a great fermented pickle. And they're available, I know, in the Ohio, probably in the Midwest area. And well, I've actually seen them out now in California now in Sprouts. They even carry them there. Nice. Yeah, it's, um, so that gets into, I think, just the, the uh, how to make the pickles. I think for my business, there's some products that we make year-round, like our kimchi um, and it's mainly because we, to have the good texture, 
Uh, we can't make it all at one time a year and then store it year-round because the texture would deteriorate over time. Um, and the same for the cucumber pickles. So I think some of these crunchier cucumber pickles, they're being made uh, in smaller batches, but you know more spread out throughout the, the, the year. And that's part of what, it's an interesting uh, dilemma that I face is the balance between being a true local foods business and trying to, as my part of my mission statement, preserving the local harvest, but then also commodifying and being a business and trying to have a product line that can sit on the whole food shelf and be the best quality year round. And so, you know, the cucumber pickle thing, you know, it's, it, it can be done. You can, you know, you can buy all the local in season cucumbers and then preserve them. But then, you know, towards the end of that year, they're going to be pretty soft. And I think that's, you know, one of the challenges of some of these companies. Right. They are certainly a seasonal thing. I mean, you see some of these companies have it national, but like I know the sauerkraut company in LA, Bruskin and Brian, they only do their pickles part of the time of the year because of that. Right. And, that, and that's what I'm kind of looking at too, is this business model is yeah, trying to just feature, you know, there's a cucumber season and then, you know, come the dead of winter, you know, we're not going to be buying in cucumbers from, you know, Mexico or something. We're just, we'll all have to wait until next year. So on the other hand, is cabbage something that's available all season? Well, it 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 has a long season on it, but the the cabbage, the sauerkraut, just holds up well. Like it doesn't lose, um, it doesn't lose its crunch. Like there there's a window in the fall here in the Midwest. I think in California everything is a little different. You're kind of blessed with such an amazing year-round uh, climate, growing season. But in the Midwest, you're you know cabbage. Local cabbage starts coming in maybe in, uh, you know, late June, even early July, you get the summer cabbage and then you get the real dense, the best, big, juicy, sweet, heavy uh, cabbage heads, best for sauerkraut start coming in late August and, and in September. And then, and then it's all gets harvested, you know, throughout the next month or so. And then it stores pretty well, you know, deep into the winter. So the sauerkraut making season can, can go deep into winter. And, uh, and but the amazing thing I've found is I, I've had barrels of sauerkraut over a year old, you know, kept at room temperature, fermented in, you know, maybe 60 degrees or so. And a year later, it's been just as flavorful and crispy and crunchy as it was, you know, like two months into it. So it's for whatever reason, the sauerkraut holds much, much better than like a, a cucumber pickle. Right. I know you actually talk about how sauerkraut can actually never go bad if it's fermented. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's, a, it's an amazing thing. The, the USDA has an official statement that says properly fermented vegetables are safer than uh, raw vegetables. I think that's pretty cool. Um, but once they're properly fermented, um, because and then once they're and they kept in that raw fermented state, there's um, next to no risk of any pathogenic pathogenic uh, type of bacteria or, or you know anything that can cause an illness penetrating into there because of like the high levels of the of the beneficial bacteria but also because of the acidity and uh, when we make our sauerkraut we we have a pH tester and uh, you know within 24 hours the pH the acidity has dropped enough to uh, deem it a safe preserved food so it's really that like bacteria, but also that acidity that really keep it safe and um, can keep it crunchy and all that kind of thing. Uh, that's pretty amazing. And when you hear that, it makes me kind of wonder why are fermented foods 
not getting more attention than they are considering that the fermentation, that seems like one of the greatest things that we have. But of course, I don't have a lot of faith in our government as far as food safety. So in some ways, maybe it should surprise me that it hasn't gotten the attention it deserves. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great point. I mean, it's not to be uh, cynical, too cynical. And I think, especially with like your focus on food and such, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to become cynical when you look at the systems in place and how, you know, the game is pretty rigged on many levels. But, um, yeah, we, uh, we continue, we being our, uh, our food industry, with the great help of our government, continue to make food in some ways more unsafe. And we continue to turn away from the ancient ways of preserving food that are extremely safe. Um, but it's it's just to come back to that point. It's just to me, it's so amazing. You know, we have an industrial agricultural system which can really just contaminate food, meat especially, and vegetables. You know, there's salmonella, and uh, you know, you can, so you can have vegetables coming from a really uh, uh, wrong, the wrong way to farm, in my opinion. You know, you can grow vegetables and flood it with manure water with all kinds of you know. Uh, contamination on it, but if you properly ferment that vegetable, there's absolutely no traces of any of the contamination anymore. So it's, it is one of the safest ways to, uh, to, to transfer, to store food, but also just to make it pure again. And it goes back to those old days where, you know, there was a lot of beer around because, you know, maybe the water was unsafe to drink and it was a way to store calories and make it safe. You know, you brew beer, you know, and do your food need to be refrigerated all the time? Well, because we're selling it as a raw, unpasteurized uh, product, um, it is sold refrigerated. So, you know, it spends its life in a barrel fermenting, and then once we jar it up, then it goes into holding in a lock-in cooler, and then it gets, you know, sold out of the dairy coolers in the different stores and stuff. The cool thing is that it won't go bad, you know, if it's not kept refrigerated. Um, and there's a continual education process on that because, you know, people, we're, we're trained to think that something's going to instantly go bad um, if it's not kept really cold. But the only thing that's going to happen with our product is it might continue, it might reactivate the fermentation in, within the jar and it might build a little pressure or something. And that's what I've heard for the specific thing with kombucha is what happens is it won't go bad if you leave it out, but I just hear that it can get more acidic and more soury if you do that. But I imagine that's the same with your food. Exactly. Yep. All right. Well, we've been talking with David Klingenberger of the Brinery about the different types of fermented foods and the benefit of probiotics. We're going to hear from our sponsors, but we'll be back with him for more. To Your Health Sprouted Flour Company offers organic sprouted grains and flours for all your baking needs. We have more than 34 sprouted products, hundreds of recipes, and are always available to answer your flour and baking questions. Whether you're making sourdough breads, French baguettes, birthday cakes, granola, or pancakes, let us be your sprouted grain and flour source. Certified organic and kosher, featuring 20 gluten-free sprouted products. And for the month of July, you get free shipping on orders of 15 pounds or more. Go to the website, organicsproutedflour.net, or call toll-free at 877-401-6837 to start shopping. What is a healthy diet? Conflicting information is thrown at us daily. Help chart your course to wellness with a steady guide, the Weston A. Price Foundation. Our nutrition and health information is helping many families recover from degenerative disease and nutrient deficiencies. 
Join for only $40 a year and receive our quarterly journal. Visit our website, westonaprice.org, for more details. Olea State's olive oil has been produced by the Cronus family on a small estate in Sparta, Greece since 1856. The olives are all certified organic and hand-picked. The oil is cold-pressed within 30 minutes and is extra virgin with an acidity of 0.24. I use Olea for all my olive oil needs, cooking, baking, salad dressing, hummus, and much more. Olea is distributed in the U.S. by Carl Berger. All products can be ordered on the website oleastates.com or by contacting Carl by email k-a-r-l at oleastates.com. And we're back. You're listening to The Appropriate Omnivore. I'm your host, Aaron Zover. This is our final show for July Independence Month. For the final show, I'm interviewing David Klingenberger of The Brinery, and we've been talking about the benefits of fermentation, the different types of fermented products that the brinery sells, from pickles to sauerkraut to kimchi. And the type of fermentation, David, that you use is wild fermentation. Explain to the listeners how wild fermentation differs from other types of fermentation. Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, wild fermentation, we're, we're capitalizing on the amazing, diverse, abundant uh, bacteria that are on our on our human skin. It's on the skin of the vegetables. It's in our digestive system. They're in the soil around the roots of the plants. It's We are truly living a symbiotic relation, uh, lifestyle with bacteria on many, many levels. Um, just like uh, many other industries and agriculture, there's been a lot of, uh, you know, development and uh, selection of different strains of yeast and bacteria. And nowadays there's like very uh, scientific uses and there's, there's laboratory bred cultures. Um, I, I really feel strongly that it's, it's so important and wonderful to uh, capture um, uh, the wild fermentation. So, uh, like I said, there's, you know, when we get a cabbage out of the field, it, it comes loaded with a, uh, with probiotics that are ready to, uh, to break down those sugars and to vert, uh, the cabbage into sauerkraut. So, um, it, there could be a, a benefit to, um, cold, to adding a specific culture. And I know there's a lot of like specific cultures sold. Um, online and different, you know, different websites. But uh, cabbage, want, just like raw milk wants to sour and turn to a cultured product, it wants to do it. Uh, you know, cabbage wants to turn to sauerkraut if it's given the right environment. So it's really fun to capture that and just create the right environment for a natural occurring process. Right. So you believe that wild fermentation is the best type of fermentation? I, you know, it, I think it's the best on, on, on some levels. Uh, maybe for like a truly you know efficient system with more control over the end result, uh, it, it might be better to use a specific cultures um, because you might you'll get more of the standardized results. But that's kind of my challenge is you know having a business that is um, specifically um, like it, it's hard to get the same results with wild fermentation and it can be challenging, but it's also kind of the part of the joy uh, is having unique different products. We'll make four barrels of sauerkraut in, in one day and 
it'll be the same recipe, same ingredients, and after when we, you know, break into those barrels to taste test them, each barrel can have very unique characteristics and different flavors. Like they're they're all within the same realm, and I can still sell that product as the same product, but there's subtle. If you taste them side by side, there'll be subtle, subtle uh, flavor differences, texture differences, and it, it just showcases the uniqueness of every barrel because of that wild fermentation. I think that's an amazing thing about fermentation and really just about real food is that not every time it tastes the same way. There's a different taste to it every time you have it, a little subtle difference each time. Absolutely. Yeah, It's and it's, you know, what we're trying to do is shift the conversation, you know, get it more along the lines of like wine. You know, it's a selling point of wine to have, you know, each year there's going to be a slightly different you know, because the, the way that the temperature of where the grapes are grown or whatever, whatever it is, there's a, it's a unique thing and it's, and it's part of the selling point. Um, with food, you know, we're trained, we've been training ourselves to expect, you know, standardized results and have like factory made food that is the same, you know, the old example of like McDonald's, you know, it has to be the same anywhere in the world that you go to eat it. And um, with, with the fermented foods, we're trying to shift the paradigm a little and bring it back to the excitement of having variables and slight differences because that's a natural natural thing and it's okay and it's exciting to have uh, different variables and different flavors within the same product line. And I think the type of fermentation, whether it's wild fermentation or other type, really applies to the type of food that you're fermenting. Like certainly for kombucha or for like sourdough bread, you need a culture, but for foods like sauerkraut, pickles, kimchi, wild fermentation works the best with it. Absolutely. But even, you know, sourdough bread itself is, is a wild fermentation, but it's been, it's a wild culturing that's been kept going. It's like kind of, you know, the ancient humans keeping that little coal going to be able to light the next fire. You know, that sourdough culture is just kept alive and kept fed and it's slowly evolving over time. And um, it's a really amazing relationship. And that's something that we'll just get into just a little bit. It's like, you know, realizing that we're, co-evolving with the the specific bacteria you know they're they're in they're in our facility they're in the barrels themselves and it's on our skin and i think that we are definitely uh co-evolving a specific uh bacteria strains which are becoming predominant in our ferment we talked earlier about how nourishing traditions was a major early influence in your work and Another book which is well-regarded within the world of fermentation is Wild Fermentation by Sander Katz. Have you read that? Oh, absolutely. Um, Wild Fermentation and then his newest omnibus, the you know, the Bible basically is The Art of Fermentation. And that just came out, I think, within the last uh, year or two. Um, yeah, Sandor Katz is, I would call him my personal hero. Um, and he, I would defer to him and his writings above anything else for anyone interested in any level of uh, the art and the culture and the science of fermentation. I think he's pretty much become like the foremost expert as far as fermentation. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And he's, you know, he's very articulate and he, he is definitely bringing it to the, the main, to, to the mainstream. Um, you know, he gets great interviews and he was he's featured prominently whenever, you know, any mainstream, um, you know, new, journalist is doing a story on fermentation so yeah he, he is he is so great and I I've never met him but uh, one day I will and I'll be a fanboy 
Yeah, I know he constantly speaks at the Weston Price conferences. I know he spoke at the national one last year. I'm still debating it, um, but I would like to go down to that national conference as a vendor. It would be great for my business. We're really starting to just get our online store launched, so we'll be selling our our ferments through the through the mail. And uh, it's going to be a busy time for me though, because uh, I'm in a very small facility right now, and we've very, very, very much outgrown it um, because the number one thing we need is, is uh, storage space because these ferments take quite a while to, you know, fully mature, and so we need barrel storage space. So we're moving this fall, hopefully in September, to a new facility that has that's being custom built for us that has a quite a large climate-controlled warehouse space where, where we'll be able to store all our barrels because um, we're, we're really looking to expand and uh, double production. So um, it's going to be a little busy time this fall, but if I can, I'm definitely going to make it down to the to the National uh, Nourishing Traditions Conference. They're great. I mean, you've been to the regional one, which in itself was certainly a great way of networking a lot with people in the regional area. And national ones are just what the regional ones are and a lot more because as people, not just from all over the country, but from all over the world, I mean, I remember last year at the banquet dinner, Sally Fallon asked what continents people were from, and people stood up for all of them. So, I mean, you have uh, members like the European chapters and people from Australia, really people from everywhere coming to attend this. Yeah, it's, it's a great networking. And I, I've always been on the periphery of the uh, Wesley Price Foundation, um, but it's, it's something, it's, it's, it's such a great network, like you're, like you're saying, and it's... Uh, I continue to become more connected and realize how beneficial it is to my business as well to, you know, to be a part of these events. And uh, it's just such an amazing, passionate group of people. It's really, it's really amazing. And you said that you had read Nourishing Traditions going back to 2001. So you actually had discovered Weston Price pretty early on. Yeah, I did. I, I was really fortunate to, um, cause I, I just really immersed myself in kind of a back to the land type situation. I never went to college I went straight into agriculture and farming and it really became my identity early on. And it was right around, I think, I mean, I remember the fellow I was living with, the other young fellow, he brought the book over and I think it had just come out like a year or two before. And uh, it was, it was definitely something that we were really excited about. And uh, in the past decade of on the periphery, I've really seen the movement grow and it's, uh, it's been really exciting. And was there a chapter that you were able to get involved with after discovering the book? Yeah, this, the, well, you know, I never did. I traveled around so much, and I've always just been kind of like a fringe person. So I've always been like around. I've had friends who are really involved with different chapters, but I've always just been kind of on the peripheral. And that's always that's just kind of been my personality type. But um, as you know, I've started this fermented food business, and I've started to become um, more directly involved. But uh, yeah, I've always just been kind of like involved more on the peripheral. And you're talking about moving to a new facility. Are there other plans for expansion with the brinery as far as some other foods perhaps you might offer? Yeah, we're constantly trying to balance just refining our sauerkraut production and maybe just tweaking different sauerkraut recipes, but then really doing test kitchen work and uh, developing uh, new products. We're, we're really excited about um, doing the bean ferment. So we had been talking about tempeh a little bit, but we're, I'm really excited about doing you know misos and there's a lot of Chinese bean ferments. Um, you know, I'm really excited to to develop umami 
um, that you know deep savory flavor. Right. The Japanese are so so big fans of, and I think through fermentation, that's one of the best ways to develop umami and um, the proteins. The fermented beans have uh, such potential for 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 developing that umami. So we're we're developing bean ferments as well as the kvasses and uh, you know things like that. Um, one other thing that I'm really excited about is our hot sauce. We started to really uh, this past year we we made some wonderful uh, fermented hot sauce that was aged for about eight or nine months. And this fall, we're looking to, to do quite a few barrels, maybe five or six barrels of uh, hot pepper mash, which will ferment for, you know, a good, good, at least six months, six to nine months, and then we'll blend it and, uh, you know, have a nice product line of uh, fermented hot sauces. And in addition to miso and tempeh, have you also looked at making a fermented tofu? Um, I, I, I know of it and it's for, you know, it's my own silly thing. I have this, I, I, I appreciate tempeh or I appreciate tofu, but, um, at this point I'm, I'm not, I have no plans to make a fermented tofu and it's mainly because I have this, you know, it's my own, it doesn't really necessarily make any sense, but I, I have a filter on my brain and I think tofu to me is, is too processed and I appreciate it, but the process of making the tofu is it, 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 it's too much of a refinement, and I love whole food. I want to be in a whole food business, and I consider tempeh to be a whole food. It's cooked beans that are inoculated and fermented, whereas tofu is, you know, there's there's a lot more refinement to it. And thought of that, but I think you, know, you might be right. I mean, you need to reread Kayla Daniels' The Whole Soy Story to learn again about the process of exactly how tofu is made. Because I know certainly that's a problem with a lot of this soy is that it is heavily processed and refined from what originally starts with. And certainly the better types of soy are the tempeh, the miso, and also the natto. I don't know if you've looked at oh. all into that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Have you, do you like natto? I actually haven't tried it. I'm a little afraid because I've heard it compared to a very pungent cheese, and I have to say You're I'm not, not far the biggest fan of pungent cheeses. Yeah, it's weird. I like a lot of fermented things, and natto is going into the realm of things that are challenging, to say the least. And that's, but that's kind of the beautiful thing about fermented foods. It's there's no there's no uh, black and white. There's no like safe unsafe. Like there's no like good and bad because one one man's bad is another man's delectable good ferment and there's things that i as a fermenter you know i i every day i have cut i was at the farmer's market all day yesterday and i i was giving samples all day and i you know you get those people who who try kimchi or or something like that and their their whole face just scrunches up and there's something about that pungent you know odor and flavor that really offends them but then to me it's, it's a it's a delightful treat but then there's some things that are fermented that would definitely give me a, you know, a, a start that, you know, like, like nacho. Nacho is not something I would sit down and devour, but to other people, it's a great delicacy. So there's always going to be something that pushes the envelope and, uh, you know, creates deep flavors, which are slightly offensive to many other people. Yeah, I know some people that love nacho because I was talking to someone about nacho and saying, oh, I haven't tried it, but the Western Press is really big on it because I guess it's considered to be the healthiest form of soy and just like, okay. oh, why haven't you tried it then if the Western <laughs> Price recommends it? <laughs> right, right, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. But it's funny because it is. It, it is truly pungent. What's what's interesting is actually um, as we figure out how to make te tempeh properly, we have to incubate the tempeh at a certain temperature. And if it's too warm, 
there's uh, strains of of the nacho culture that get established in the tempeh, and it's definitely kind of a turnoff because it's, it's slimy and has a strong, pungent, like cheesy smell, and it's not definitely not the way we want our tempeh to taste. But it's uh, it's so it's, it's funny because it's you know if you create the wrong environment for the tempeh, you get that nacho culture in there. So and so in addition to uh, changing the facility and expanding the line a little. Are you looking at expanding a little bit as far as where people can find your products? Absolutely. So um, within the next couple of weeks, we'll have our online store fully functional, and we'll be, you know, seeing how that how that works. You know, I'm I'm a local food business. I like selling my products all around our our food shed here in southeastern Michigan. But I really uh, am looking to get this get these out to people. So we'll see about doing online sales. And we're also just slowly expanding our reach, you know, into the Chicago area, um, you know, definitely back into the East Coast, into New York. And uh, we'll see how things go. I have ambition and I'd like to see some kind of, you know, product line that gets farther, farther reach. Maybe even instead of having one large production facility here in Michigan, um, maybe the plan would be to have, you know, micro fermentation facilities kind of spread throughout the country and in that way we're able to tap into the locally grown produce and kind of keep it more regional but have it be the same business plan um so we're, as we expand i'm just kind of you know thinking about the different ways to do it but um uh we're in the middle of trying to raise funds as well because it's a unique business model you know this fall we're we're going to be buying about you know 100,000 pounds of local organic produce and we're going to, I'm going to buy it all from the local farmers. I'm going to pay people to process it. We're going to pack it into these barrels and we're going to put it away and we're not going to really see it for another six months because we ferment these barrels for up to six months. So it's really, we need a lot of funds up front to be able to do this. So I'm in a challenging place right now as we grow to try to raise the funds to be able to do that because we don't see the returns for quite a while. And that's, it's a unique business model to say the least. What areas currently can we find the brinery products? Um, so we're very strong in southeastern Michigan here, um, and uh, there's a store in Chicago called Plenty, a very small little store, and then Sunday Farmers Markets at Logan Square in Chicago. Besides that, we're pretty much a Michigan-based company with online sales going live within the month, within this next month. Any look at expanding into Ohio? Definitely, definitely. Um, and uh, I know there's a great company down there, Fat uh, Fab Ferments, um, but I'm definitely interested in expanding down into Ohio, and that would be kind of our, like, within the next year, we're going to be expanding our production and working with a distributor to help us get into areas that we're uh, not able to, to be in right now. So Ohio, definitely. I'd say within the next few years, like three years, I'd like to be, you know, Midwest strong, with like Michigan plus, Ohio, Illinois, Wisconsin, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, Jennifer and Jordan that run Pab Food Ferments, that's certainly a great company, and they were at the conference also in Detroit a few months ago. And I know they cover mostly the southern area of Ohio. Um, so mainly what I'm looking at is maybe if you get into more northern Ohio area, it would be great. When I go home and visit my parents in Cleveland, I could get some of the brinery. Absolutely. Yeah, the northern Ohio. That's, and that's really close to us because we're, we're just like an hour away from from Toledo. So yeah, I definitely know that Ohio would be part of that plan. And do you find the area of Ann Arbor to be a great location for your business? It is. It's a great area. There's a, um, there's some great food culture here. There's 
Zingerman's Deli is here, and it's a really, really renowned uh, company. And they're they've been leading. They're on the leading curve of of artisan food from all over the world, and um, they're one of my biggest purchasers of sauerkraut. So, you know, their number one selling sandwich is the Reuben, a classic sandwich with you know brined beef and and sauerkraut. So um, we sell them about 30 gallons a week, and then they also have a mail order catalog which sends our kraut all over the country as well um so and this area is definitely very rich and uh, there's a lot of uh local farms in the area i have access to a lot of great produce so um, it is a great great area to to run this business zingerman's is a great company i had ra weinswig the founder on my show a little over a month ago and i mean it's amazing because zingerman's i describe them as a farm to table restaurant before there was even the term farm to table yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it's uh, and it's, it's interesting because they have the deli, they have the restaurant, they have a mail order catalog, they have a creamery that makes cheese. Um, it's funny when I started the brinery, you know, and I had sold produce to Zingerman's for you know many years through my farming in the area, um, and I really thought, uh, pretty, pretty seriously about approaching Zingerman's to start a Zinger the Zingerman's brinery because it would fit with their their kind of artisan food culture um and i was too amb- i was too headstrong and t- i wanted to jump right into it. it it would have been a slower growth but uh you know i did really think about trying to partner with zingerman's early on and the amazing company they also have the corman farms that they work with and that provides a lot of food that they serve there absolutely yeah it's a they have a they're really it's an amazing network of interconnected businesses all under the umbrella of zingerman's and yeah they're doing a lot of amazing uh farm to table work for sure yeah, and they also they have some good farmers markets where you are. They do. Yeah, we um there's a lot of farmers markets in the area. Um, we're predominantly our home base is the Ann Arbor Farmers Market every Wednesday and Saturday, and it's right across the street from uh, Zingerman's Deli downtown Ann Arbor. And then we also go to a wonderful market, uh, the Detroit Eastern Farmers Market, and that's every Saturday as well. And that's quite a large market that sure serves all the Metro Detroit area. Um, and we go to a couple other smaller satellite markets throughout the week. But our business is really transitioning mainly to a couple key farmers markets, but mainly into wholesale production and selling it to sto- selling our product to stores and restaurants. That's really where the growth of our business is. What are some of the other restaurants that people can find your food in other than Zingerman's? Um, here in Ann Arbor, there's some great restaurants. Uh, a great farm-to-table restaurant is The Grange, and uh, Chef Brandon uses our tempeh and sauerkraut and all that kind of stuff. Um, the Ravens Club uses our, our product. There's some food carts down at Mark's Cart that use our, our product. Um, in Metro Detroit, there's a great vegetarian restaurant called In Season Cafe. Um, they're in Royal Oak. They use, uh, they use our tempeh and sauerkraut. And there's a, a few restaurants in downtown Detroit also that use our product, uh, most notably being the, the Green Dot Stables. And they're kind of known for their sliders. They do little mini hamburgers and stuff like that. And they use our tempeh and sauerkraut and kimchi as well. Oh, sounds good. So certainly lots of places to find your food if you're in the Ann Arbor and Michigan area. We're going to have to go to our desserts in a second. But before we go, tell the listeners the website where they can learn more about the brinery and the products you offer. Yeah, so we have a great new website getting rolled out. And it's thebrinery.com. All one word, the brinery, B-R-I-N-E-R-Y. And there's a, there's a list of where to find our products. There's an online store. 
and all kinds of news and information. That sounds great. Well, David, it's been a pleasure to have you here and to round out the final episode of the July Independence Month. And now for the desserts, how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. This Friday, August 2nd, the Soho Restaurant and Music Venue is holding a benefit for the SOL Food Festival coming up in September. Soho will be previewing their new sustainable, organic, and locally sourced menu. Many local artisans will also be at the event, as well as some bands from around the area. The fundraiser starts at 7 p.m. For more information, visit Soho's website at SohoSB.com. Also, Sunday, August 4th from 1 to 4, the Culture Club 101 in Pasadena will be offering another one of its GAPS classes. This session is on gluten-free baking. You can learn how to make bread, crackers, and pizza crust using grain-free flowers, nuts, seeds, and legumes. To register for the event, visit the Culture Club 101's webpage at cultureclub101.com. And finally, you have two days left to buy early bird tickets for the Santa Barbara Fermentation Festival occurring on August 24th. The event features speakers that are at the top of the world of real food, such as Hannah Crum of Kombucha Camp, Monica Ford of Real Food Devotee, Mark McAfee of Organic Pastures, and Jenny McRuther of Nourish Kitchen. The event also includes a great farm-to-table lunch, demonstrations, workshops, and vendors of everything from food artisans to books to organizations. To get your early bird tickets, go to the website santabarbarafermentationfestival.eventbrite.com. For a more detailed list of events going on in the Southern California area, check out the calendar on the Weston A. Price Pasadena's website at westonapricepasadena.blogspot.com. That's all for this week of The Appropriate Omnivore. My guests next week are Yuda and Jesus Gamboa of the Zucchini Express CSA. For more information on my guests, visit my blog at appropriateomnivore.com. Thank you.